0: Uh, it's always a joy to present these at the end of a, a round of catechesis. Um, so we have catechesis on the virtues this morning. Um, virtue language is really kind of um, interesting because a lot of a lot of people in churches grew up without it. Um, they sort of it wasn't a part of their world, um, and yet I would say that it's very helpful. Um, For several reasons, Um, and some of you, of course, are good philosophy students, et cetera, or students of the New Testament, and you say, well, uh, you know, there's tons of really good moral instruction in the New Testament, but how can we um, avoid some of the pitfalls? Well, what are the pitfalls of teaching on commandments or moral teaching at all? We've talked about them here. They're big time pitfalls. What are they? Yeah, works righteousness. Like that's a lovely one. It's like the way that you become righteous as a Christian is by doing good works. And of course, Christians will always say, "No, the way you become righteous is the grace of Jesus and and His perfect work." Um, And and so you have to avoid that. That's a big thing to avoid. And and He might help you. He might help you. And He does help you. Um, The purpose of one of the purposes of grace is to restore our human nature um, to the to the dignity that we lost in the fall. So there is a moral content, but it, we've got to make sure that we avoid that pitfall. What's another pitfall? Right. Yep. It's kind of this idea of, like, well, Christians just basically teach a kind of normal human morality in general. Every religion says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, you know, we can, we can all just agree that that's a good thing and we should just do that. Okay. Well, there's a, there's a big problem, right? Um, I'd say another major pitfall is not just works righteousness, but legalism, right? Which is where we, we, instead of saying a great deal about what God does for us sinners, um, we begin to talk about how whose side God's on, right? (laughs) Is he on the side of the righteous or the side of sinners? Um, And that's that's not helpful at all. And and we tend to kind of come up with this idea of uh, legal perfectionism is what saves us. Not even works righteousness, but just living up to a high legal standard. Of course, then what do we become? <laughs> Pharisees is what we become. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, as Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That's the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Um, I would add one more, which is a kind of um, thing that's come about in, in uh, maybe two more, but but one is really important. It's, it's a kind of deontologizing of, of uh, Christian ethics, which basically says, we're going to say nothing about what a human person is. We're going to say nothing about what human beings are. And we're absolutely not going to say anything about God. All we really want to get to is rules. Um, well, that's a problem, right? Because if we're if the Christian, uh, uh, our moral life is lived simply for the sake of following good rules, no matter how good they can be, but we're not doing this for God or even as, as a baseline, because we understand human beings are meant to be who are made in the image of God, that becomes a problem as well. Um, the other thing that I'd, I'd add in is um, we, we underestimate constantly just how much of an effect the Enlightenment had on, on morality in general. And part of the problem is that, uh, that with people like Kant, Kant's sitting there saying, hey, you know, we can kind of come up with these rationally explicable moral accounts of the universe, and we should just do that. <laughs> Because at least there's something we can all agree on without having to be stuck in these religious traditions that we are going to fight endlessly over. Let's just get back to what, what everybody can, can agree upon. Do harm, don't do anything bad, right? <laughs> and and here's, here's the problem for Christians. But some of, that, some of what we actually hold, um, the, the, the rational basis for that is not apparent immediately. Right? Even about things today like, well, you know, thou shall not murder. Well, Why? Is it that reasonable that we should have a command like that um, so uh, well, and then we get to one more, which is that um, which I find is very prevalent today and it, and it really is how most people think about moral questions is really a kind of decision based ethic right the The purpose of of moral reasoning is to come to make good decisions um, and if you don't believe me, you know go to when you go to the target next and you see a mom struggling with her kid and she says. Tommy, you need to make better decisions. It's like, there's the problem, right? <laughs> it's like, Tommy doesn't need to make better decisions. Tommy needs to have his affections altered, right? Um, Tommy needs to have his, he needs to, he needs to start imbibing some real virtue, right? Because Tommy doesn't understand what a, what a, what a grown-up, mature human being is, right? He has, no, he has no end in sight when it comes to that. And so if all mom and dad ever say is, we're gonna teach you to make better decisions, he's never gonna do that, probably. He might, he might, and, and we might be able to say, his behaviors might be altered, a bit, but who he is as a human being is going to be rather untouched. Okay, um, so Christians have always understood, and I, I, thanks be to God for this, you know, that our will has to be molded, our affections have to be molded. Um, and Christians have spoken rather confidently from what is actually something which we inherited not from Judaism, but from the Greek tradition of all things, <laughs> where, where virtue is spoken of in a very positive light, and so the work of um, Aristotle and Plato comes into a major focus, um, and, and it's an important thing, and we're going to talk about why that is. Okay. Okay. So, uh, name two kinds of virtues. These are all questions and answers. The virtues are summarized as the theological and the cardinal virtues. Okay, so we have these two lists. Uh, One comes out of 1 Corinthians. Um, It's the theological virtues, which are, these three abide, what are they? Faith, hope, and love. It's... You know, it's the standard wedding text from the New Testament, First Corinthians 13. And uh, if I speak with the tongues of man- angels and of men, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. Um, and 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 Paul um, Paul speaks to this need that we have uh, to to get down to the basics of what will last. <laughs> um, what will what will what will last forever. Um, and faith, hope, and love are called the theological virtues, and the reason is that their their aim and their end is not even human happiness, is it? It's God. And I will say this: God gets lost in the shuffle sometimes, right? We forget God. Um, I'm going to say a lot about this in the homily today, so I don't want to spoil it. But but the our culture and even even church culture in America has become overwhelmingly deistic. Um, Years ago in 2005, the National Survey on Youth and Religion, uh, Christian Smith, uh, and you should read this book. It's, it's kind of getting dated because it was, I can't believe it's 14 years ago, but, but, but he writes very compellingly. He was the one who conducted the National Survey on Youth and Religion, and he, he writes saying that uh, American youth, which is now, uh, you know, grown-ups in their, in their early 30s, <laughs> are, are uh, moralistic, therapeutic deists. And the most compelling line in that entire book is, he says, why do, why do American young people believe this? Because it's what's taught in their churches. A moralism, uh, a kind of um, God helps me be a better person kind of thought. And, and he certainly doesn't live in me. <laughs> and he certainly doesn't have any interest in my day-to-day life, except when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Then I can call upon him, and he might make me feel better about it, but he's not going to do anything. That's deism, okay? Okay. Um, so those are the theological virtues, and then we have the cardinal virtues, um, which are fortitude, justice, temperance, and prudence, um, and uh, and they are the classical virtues. Now, what is a virtue? Go ahead. We'll let the philosopher answer. A way, <laughs> a way of being, yes, way of being for the good. yes, for the good. It's yeah. That's that's a good that's a good answer. I mean. Um, Yes, and virtue language has the benefit of cutting straight to the question of who we are as human beings. What, what are we made for? What is our purpose? What is our end? Um, whereas you can even sometimes fault the, the language that Christians use for saying, but that language you're using has no accounting for who human beings are made in the image of God. Um, and, and that's really the first part of that, that word. Vir means man. Um, and, and the question is, who is man supposed to be, right? And we're not leaving women out. I mean, it's just a, it's a universal, right? Um, but there is, a, there, there is a sense, and we're going to talk about this later, that um, all Christian virtue is lived out manfully because Jesus Christ is the true man, the second Adam, who, who alone in all of human history lives perfectly with full virtue. Um, and I love the later questions, but, but he gives us this. Um, his triumph is given to us, um, and not just in a kind of a, I hate to say this, but moral victory kind of sense. It's, it's, it's actually given to us in a way that we can access. What are the theological virtues? Holy, the Holy Scriptures call me to faith, hope, and charity, or love. Um, we use this word charity as a replacement for love because, uh, well, you know the connotations of love, right? Which is, which is not, I want to deny myself for your good. What is it? Yeah, I want to gratify myself at your expense, (laughs) and that, my friends, is not love. That is the very definition of lust. Um, But you know, you hear love on the radio, and or does anybody listen to the radio anymore? Uh, You know, whatever iTunes has you listening to, uh, you know, or Spotify, it's it's not that for sure. Um, But the scriptures call us to this. Why did I mean? Why does Paul? Can we open that up? Let's just open up that text. I'm going to get a Bible. Should be, yeah. Uh, Turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll just reference that. Here's Paul. When I was a child, he says, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love, abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, what's he talking about in the first part of that section? When I was a child, I did all these childish things. But when I became a man, I did what? Put away the childish things. So he's, he's actually speaking about... A really in a very earthy way. It's a very earthy people. Um, a, he's speaking about uh, about virtue and 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 a telos, right? We had Hans Boersma taking talking a great deal about telos earlier on in the catechesis sessions. But this is absolutely essential. Paul thinks in many ways like a hybrid Jew and Greek at the same time. He knows that human beings have an end that we that we that we are that we're, uh, that we're drawn towards actually. Um, I think it's actually wrong to say that that a telos is something that we strive for. It's actually that we're naturally drawn to it. It's put into us. This is what it means to be made in the image of God, is that we're drawn to God. And look what he says. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Um, He he accounts for the the confusion of human life as being uh, still very much children who don't see the world properly. Um, You can probably think in your own life of, of... of talking to a little kid and the little kid says something very fanciful, right? And you think, yeah, that's not exactly right, but, you know, we'll let that go for now, right? <laughs> and it's because they're not ready yet to, to, get, the, to get the grown-up version, right? Um, you know, we always teach our kids about the special hug, you know. That's kind of an important thing in our household is the, the special hug. And then, and then at a certain point, they graduate from special hug to something a little more clear. <laughs> and and we're, we're careful with this, right? But they see dimly. Um, part of maturing is to see fully, to see it clearly, um, and of course, you know, there's there's the time for even that down the road, um, to fully understand. He says, "Now I know in part, but then I shall understand fully." When will he understand fully? Ah, when he sees face to face, when he's face to face with the image of God, and not just the image of God, but the face of God. Um and Christians have accounted for this as, as the beatific vision for which our our very beings were made. Um, uh, you know, Augustine has that wonderful line, our hearts are restless, O God, until they rest in thee. Um, it's in the beatific vision, this blessed vision of God, that our that our our lives are um, reach their summation. Um, so it's not just a sort of and I, I love this about what we see in the ascension, right? I mean we Christians are very, we're very, very serious about this. That everything that, um, everything that happened to Jesus will someday happen to us. You ready to rise from the dead, to go to the Father, to be with the Father, to side by side with the Father, at the right hand of the Father, um, to reign in glory. Even I mean, Paul uses the same language about the future state of Christians as he does about Jesus, and likewise. Um, so this is to say that our, the summation of, of the human life is found in the vision of God. Um, well, that's all well and good. How do we get that? <laughs> As sinners that we are. Well, we're going to talk about that. All right. How are faith, hope, and love the essence of the Ten Commandments? Faith is the liberty of soul to trust God above all things. Hope is the confidence that God will bring redemption to all His creation Love is the free gift of self to God and neighbor. These are really short definitions, but they're very good, and and I love them a great deal. Faith is the liberty of the soul to trust God above all all things. We're not good today as Christians about speaking about the liberty of faith. Um, In many ways in the society around us, uh, faith is spoken of as a kind of straitjacket that that deliberates us or that indeed restricts us so terribly that we can't exercise freedom of course, the accounting of freedom given in secular society is not freedom to do the good or or enter into the good. It's freedom to do whatever the heck you want. Okay? This, does not, this does not jive with classical conceptions of freedom. Classical conceptions of freedom center on the will being free to do what it's supposed to do, uh, to meet its end, um, which is a problem today, right? We, we will often even, you know, here slip into... Uh, Really, uh, kind of nihilistic ways of speaking about human freedom, nihilistic accountings of human freedom, but this idea of the liberty of the soul to trust God above all things. One of my favorite authors says that um, to have faith is to put your to put your mind in the hands of God to be taught to be instructed. Um, uh, so, uh, very often, one of the things that I'll notice is that people people speak of faith almost in a in an unbridled way. Um, it's well, faith is whatever you think. Faith is whatever, you've, whatever conclusions you've drawn. And, and I will tell you this, faith is actually setting aside our own conclusions, setting aside our own, our own wants, our own wills, uh, in order to receive from God what He wants us to receive. Um, and I can tell you that this, just just to see that subtle change take place in American Christianity would change the face of American Christianity overnight. Because we'd stop this kind of persistence of saying, "Well, I don't really think that." <laughs> or, or you know, what I what I um, what I learned through the years was that the moment somebody says, um, "My theology says this," I need to sort of check out. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time, <laughs> because because what's being said is that. That the most important thing is really what I think and and how I I understand things, but that does not express uh, the liberty of the soul to trust God. Um, And it's one of the most amazing things, and especially in the Catholic tradition, Um, the liberty of the soul to trust God is undefiled by sin. Isn't that amazing? Uh, now, a lot of Protestants will say, no, there's no such thing. Li- Liberty of the soul has been completely lost in the fall. You're in trouble. <laughs> but the Catholic tradition says something quite different, which is that um, if anything's left, it's that. The one thing you've got left is, is this, um, the, the, your free will to trust God. Now, you can't do it without grace. So there's clarity there. You can't do it without grace. But it still is free, very free. Um, And those two seem to be total opposites, don't they? And yet, as I'm learning, I think they they come together in a really glorious way. Um, If my my freedom is restricted by the fall, um, then then the only thing I can do is trust God to just do what he's going to do, and I have to be a captive to that. Um, But but there there is a sense in which this freedom does speak to the liberty of the will, to to even... um, uh, respond to God's grace freely. Um, I hope I haven't scandalized you, Calvinists, but there it is. <laughs> so, uh, but I think I think that's a really uh, a really important thing to say. And, uh, and anyway, that's that. Uh, hope. Keep in mind, this is really important too. All the theological virtues are gifts. Right? Um, they're they're not something that we create on our own by human ingenuity. Right? <laughs> they're gifts. Um, in fact. Uh, uh, if you if you follow Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas says, no, they're infused virtues. These are things you don't have by nature. Um, God has to give them to you. Um, so, there's that. Hope is the confidence that God will bring redemption to all his creation. Kind of confidence. Um, as, uh, as the letter to the Hebrews says, hope is a, is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This... this um, this uh, grounding of the soul um, in God such that uh, we don't get tossed about by every wind of doctrine, right? This, is, this idea of an anchor is really important, right? Um, well, you know what? You know what sh- anybody ever been on a ship for a long time? Okay. Anyone? No? Okay. Well, the reason you drop an anchor in a harbor is what? So you don't get shipwrecked, right? It keeps you in the middle of the harbor safe, Um, And then when the winds come up or the waves come up, you don't get dashed against the rocks. That's the analogy used in Scripture, is to be anchored in God in confidence uh, that God will bring redemption to creation. Love is the free gift of self to God and neighbor. Free gift. Um, And this is actually something that I find to be really uh, um, important today which is that love, is, love must always be offered freely. Charity must always be offered freely. It cannot be compelled. Um, I, saw, I saw a friend, uh, not a great friend, but he's a friend, a post on Facebook that he thought, you know, the tax rate beyond $150,000 of income, he thought, should be 100%. And I thought, well, that's great if you don't make that, much, that kind of money, but, but if you do, what it means is that you're compelling a whole section of society to a kind of charity that means that it's the IRS that's the the blunt bludgeon of charity and not freedom. Um, And and this is kind of the problem with, I think, a lot of of the burgeoning socialism that's coming up in our society today, which is that it doesn't account for human freedom at all. Um, It says instead, people should be compelled to do the right thing instead of doing it out of their own free will. Um, and facing whatever consequences might lie uh, beyond their actions. Um, but a society in which all acts, all acts, and all, and all speech, in fact, are compelled, is a society where love grows cold. Um, and I think that's an important thing that we, can, that we should just say, right? <laughs> is, is, um, and there's, there seems to be very little accounting for that, very little accounting for that these days. Okay, next. What are the cardinal virtues? The cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. We'll talk about those. Actually, do you know why they're called cardinal? What's that? Yeah, they yeah. There's a, it's a, it's a kind of hinge. Um, it's also a reference to the directions. Right? There are four uh, four main directions: north, south, east, west. Uh, these are these are the cardinal directives. Uh, very much like a compass. Um, but, but hinge is a good one, too. They, 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 uh, that's actually the word. Um, it, there's a, a way in which, um, how would you put it? Life opens up. Um, uh, life is connected um, in this way. All right. What is prudence? Prudence is the intellectual virtue of judgment, distinguishing between right and wrong and better and worse. Okay. Let's, let's make a few distinctions here. Classically speaking, the theological virtues are entirely infused. They are foreign to us, and God gives them to us as a gift. Um, And he might give that gift to all, but it remains foreign to us by nature. It's a gift that's given to us. The the cardinal virtues are actually, um, in some ways, can be described as natural virtues. Um, They are are in us because we're human beings, we're made in the image of God, Um, however, they are helped and aided by divine grace, <laughs> and that's kind of a—it's kind of understood as, yes, you've got every—you know—every human being's got a kind of prudence, right? But on top of that is the overlay for the Christian is, is this overlay of grace that indeed perfects the virtue and brings it to its completion, um, which I think is wonderful, right? It's to say. You might, have something like, you might have something like what Christians are talking about when we talk about prudence, but you don't really have it unless it's given to you by as a gift of God's grace. So prudence is the intellectual virtue of judgment. Um, as, as Paul says, we 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 as Christians uh, because we we have the Holy Spirit, are are granted judgment in all things. Um, well, how do we do that? especially with a bent intellect, right? I mean, a lot of this is the disaster of the fall has meant that we no longer quite see things the way we should. Um, We can't judge the world rightly. Um, And yet, God gives us a gift that allows us to distinguish between right and wrong, uh, between better and worse. Um, Classically speaking, prudence regards things like hierarchies of good. So you got it? We see, this, we see this all over the map, all over the map. There are some kinds of music that are music, but they're not great, right? <laughs> they're, they're music, but like, like I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but, but, like, <laughs> but you, got, you, got, you can all think of your artists that you're not going to really think all, the, all that much of, and then you can sort of climb the ladder and you say, but this is the goods up here. This is better. Um, we think about food, right? Um, There's a difference between the chicken tenders at your school cafeteria and Julia Child's roast chicken, right? World of difference. Um, We can distinguish between these things. Um, This involves discernment. Discernment allows us to penetrate beyond what's obvious to see what needs to be seen um, so that we can live a good life. Um, And judgment is absolutely essential, okay? But you're also seeing how this stands opposed to the kind of uh, bare moral reasoning that, that often is exhibited in society, right? Which is, well, nothing's really better than anything else. Hierarchies are just, are just expressions of human power systems. And so, so they just need to be ignored as much as possible. Um, and yet, we should say that there are things, some things in creation are better than others. We should say that, um, that uh, uh, certain animals even are more majestic than others. I mean, this is why. This is why we eat certain animals, and we take in other animals as pets, um, and 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 sometimes those don't exactly line up between cultures. But it is there is a judgment being made here, um, and and it's a, it's supposed to be a prudential judgment. What is justice? Justice is a virtue of the will, determining to give to each person their due, regardless of prejudice. I love this answer uh, because. Uh, all too often, the word justice gets thrown around as kind of like a, a, a catchword. It's like, uh, well, that's unjust, or justice would look like this, or we think justice should be like this. No, justice is a virtue of the will, meaning that uh, justice is is a, is a, is um, is a, justice concerns our will, and it's our will that's that's essential in justice. It's the will to do um, uh, to give to a person their due. Um, and this often gets very confused because we'll say, "Well, you know that um, that that society has such things as injustices," and we can—I think we can say that. We should say that. But at the heart of it, that can often obscure what is the problem with me, and not the problem with society. Um, the problem with me is that I act unjustly. The problem with me is that I don't give people their due. The problem with me is that I try to cheat people. The problem with me is that I try to cheat on my taxes. The problem with me is that, um, that I, I, I hold back good for my neighbor. Okay? Um, and this last phrase is really important, regardless of prejudice. So our prejudices have to fall apart. Um, we can't prejudge uh, the justice or the rightness of a cause in advance um, and and this is where justice gets tricky. This is where it 's really tricky actually there are no such thing there 's no such thing as kind of um, general categories or procedures whereby we can apply justice rightly because every situation is different has to be taken into account. everything has to be seen um, through the eyes of what it is and not through what we want it to be. Um, so this, this, this causes us fits, doesn't it? It's, it's, I found this especially true when we were going, going through a couple years ago in this country, all the problems with, um, with police violence. And some people wanted to apply one standard, which is that cops should be trusted, and others seem to want to say, well, these victims should be trusted in every case. And I think somewhere, and it's not even in the middle, we should say, but every case is going to be different. We have to, we have to judge it based on what actually happened. And if you apply the same standard to everything, well, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get some right and you're going to get some wrong. Um, this is why in our courts we have to be really uh, cautious about applying universal standards to crimes. And actually, this is happening without us even knowing about it because so many crimes are, are, are dealt with outside of the court system. Uh, sentencing happens through plea bargains. Um, not through sentencing uh, in, the, in the classical sense. And what winds up happening is that these universal standards are applied through the, through the, the judgment of prosecutors and judges, and, and, uh, and the people are left out of it, um, which means that cases are dealt with in a cookie-cutter kind of manner. And, and our, this is a, I think this is actually a problem for our country. Um, we're not dealing with crimes on an individual basis. Now, of course, they say it would be impossibly expensive to do that. Well, yeah, it's the cost of justice, right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's to say um, that, that classically speaking, justice meant that every case has to be dealt with separately. Uh, there's no such thing as cookie-cutter standards. Um, because justice actually deals with our will, our ability to see, uh, to see a way forward. Um, I know some of you in this room actually deal daily with individual cases of what would be just in this case, what would be proper in this case. Um, so it's an important thing. What is temperance? Temperance is the virtue of restraint upon the passions and desires, seeking balance in the soul's pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. Okay. Uh, oh, Seeking balance, uh, the virtue of restraint. Um, well, let me, let me put it this way. Is cheesecake good? Yes, it's good. It can also be beautiful. Um, it can also be true, right? I mean, I think cheesecake is, is the true dessert in my opinion. <laughs> but what if I eat a whole one? Is it still good? Yes, it is. Is it still beautiful? I guess in a way, Uh, the thing that's broken is not the cheesecake. What's broken? Me. (laughs) My desires, my passions. um, And and I'm imbalanced in my passion. I'm imbalanced in my affections. So temperance is required. It's the same thing with with the gin and tonic, right? I mean, I, I love to have a good gin and tonic at the end of the day, and it's wonderful. But three or four... Again, the problem is not with the bottle of gin. The problem is me. It's me. Um, so, restraint um, upon the passions and desires. And this, this actually touches on absolutely everything in creation, doesn't it? Think about all the things that we human beings can, can enjoy sex, money, even power, right? Um, is power a bad thing? Not necessarily. In fact, it's not bad. It's actually good. Um, but we can use it in ways that are evil. Um, we can overuse it. We can underuse it. Um, and, and their balance has to be restored. Um, again, uh, temperance is, is a gift, and, and it's an overlay on, on natural human ability that, that is built up by grace. Um, so, uh, for the Christian, um, we have a new appreciation uh, for this restraint. Um, and in the New Testament, this is spoken of regularly that that we should seek to restrain bodily passions. Um, this is, in fact, uh, used to be <laughs> it used to be that this was the the, the prime thing that Christians were taught uh, when it came to living the moral life. Um, uh, we were talking about this with Brazos Fellows last year uh, about the, the how Christians engaged in uh, in learning practices of fasting almost as the first thing they learned, even before they learned things like the creed. It was uh, to, to, a, to a new catechumen, well, let's talk about fasting. <laughs> how should you fast? When should you fast? Um, how much should you fast from? Well, why would they do this? In addition to thinking about the body in a really interesting way medically, <laughs> which is that ancient people understood that they believed that uh, the body has enough juice to run indefinitely without eating and without drinking anything, but that usually it's our bodily passions that sort of overtake our rational body, and so then we can, you know, so we have to eat, uh, or we, we think we have to eat. But there's a truth here, right? Which is that our our passions are problematic. Um, our disordinate desire for things is problematic, or you can say Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're getting to that point in Easter, right? It's it's uh, it's time to start fasting again, um, and and uh, you know, Father Canary and I had a wonderful little debate about whether or not the, the upcoming days Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday are fast days. And I originally took the position that well they're they're not fast days because so they're in an Easter and he said no 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 they're fast days and here's my prayer book to prove it and he was right <laughs> uh, Monday through Wednesday are called rogation days and they're they're kind of light fasts for um, you know uh, industry and agricultural production and so you know if you if you if you are interested you know you can take on a little bit of a fasting over the next three days prior to Ascension uh, which is a feast day so uh, <laughs> but but it's to say that um, that. We experience through fasting just how disordered our passions have become, um, and, and especially when we start to fast from things that are not food. Um, we start to see all the disordered things. But I, I still think food fasting is really important because it, 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 not only because it shows us where our passions are disordered, but because God can use it to reorder our passions. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that, but, but you give up dessert for very long, for a long period, and you think you know, I don't miss it. <laughs> I don't miss that kind of feeling that I used to have. I don't miss all of those things. So I'm done. You know, or, or I can now have the right, um, the right prerogative on it. Um, so temperance is, is the key. Temperance has gotten a bad name primarily because of association with the temperance movement in America, uh, whereby people renounced all forms of alcohol and other things, um, and, uh, and what they meant was not temperance. What they meant was uh, abstention, um, and, uh, and I think I would say Christians have, have often abstained from things for a time—this is important—for a time, um, and, or for the, for the cause of their own conscience— but I think it's important to state that, that most of the time uh, we, we hold that fasting is important um, in terms of reordering those passions, um, reordering desire. Okay. Go ahead. certain straightforward. Yep. But I'd like yep. to hear more about ah. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the one of the pitfalls of feasting um, is a kind of escapism. Um, it's a kind of uh, out of body experience that you're trying to bring about by 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 eating absolutely delicious food in abundance, um, by drinking yourself dizzy. Um, there's a problem there, right? It's it is actually it winds up becoming a kind of a, escape from the body. Um, Christian fasting as a practice is always done, first of all, as an act of thanksgiving. It's a, it's a way of consecrating um, our, uh, our, our, in a sense, our eating life, right? But it's more than just eating, isn't it? Right? In the Christian imagination, feasting is not just about eating. It's about music. It's about dancing. It's about uh, joy and merriment and, and all those things. So another thing I would say, too, is when, when food takes center stage in a feast, um, and it often will, right? You know, you think about uh, Christmas dinner is often very festive, and it should be, right? Our Easter dinner, Easter lunch in our house is always very festive, and it should be. But uh, but when it's sort of overtaken by other things which might come in, which is things like, um, yeah, I know we're eating this prime rib, but it costs so much money, and I'm kind of grumpy about the fact I had to shell out that, you know, it's that kind of thing. Or um, but And that's where I would say that... Um, Christian feasting takes place in the context of joy, but it also takes place in the context of, of thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Um, and in that sense, i say the next thing about it, um, Christian feasting is always tied explicitly to the Eucharist. It's a way of remembering. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what's the important thing about remembering? Is it having an accurate accounting of the past just for its own sake? No, no, not at all. Like we, we remembrance is a way of forming our, our, forming our passions and affections for the future. You know how that happens, right? It, we we remember. Um, I, I we had a wedding here yesterday, and I remembered my own wedding day. As I looked at this young couple standing across from me, and I thought, golly. You know, 14 years ago, that was me. I was such a kid, you know, and I was like, and I was just, it was a, it was an amazing thing. But but you know what it did? It sent me home with newfound affection for my wife. And I'm not saying it wasn't there before, but it but it it, it reawakened it in me. Do you see the point? So I think I think feasting actually reawakens our loves. Um, and I think that would that would be a, a pretty good marker to know that you're doing it well. Um, And it it heightens our remembrance of the great great deeds of God and and it it trains us to expect them in the future. Um, I think we get very morose about life and uh, and fasting and feasting together um, allow us to to get over that. What is fortitude? Fortitude is the virtue of endurance, which grants patience to the will, persevering despite all obstacles. Um, Fortitude is most often identified with courage. Um, as a as an idea, um, but it's the virtue of endurance. Um, and um, you know, Paul in Romans says that endurance um, is produced by suffering. Uh, and and there's often in today's world not a positive accounting of suffering, is there? It's like, well, what's the purpose of suffering? <laughs> it's a malevolent God who doesn't exist. <laughs> right? That's that's the accounting in secularism of suffering. It's you know. It's blame it on God and then just then say God doesn't exist. It's like it's done. It's the one-two punch. It's like well, no. There's there's actually there's actually a positive good that can come from suffering, uh, and it and it's endurance. Um, through this, we're granted uh, uh, patience in the will. What what are the things you notice about little kids? Are they patient? No, no. Do they like delayed gratification? Not at all. It's like, <laughs> I want a cookie. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you're going to have to wait because the cookies are not done baking yet. <laughs> but I want it. <laughs> it's like, they're not done. Okay. Or they're all gone. Um, so you're going to have to wait. Um, and for a little kid, it's hard to quite understand. But, but there's a kind of suffering that's involved there. And, and, it's, and it's light and it's, and it's a little, but, but it, it actually, by enduring that suffering, they're trained for something greater or greater suffering. Um, and we need this endurance um, because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's characterized by suffering. And all too often, um, we, can be, we can be lured into believing that all of this suffering that we endure is just, it's just an illusion, right? Um, that's just kind of the Buddhist way of, of doing it is to say, yeah, life is all suffering. But the other part of Buddhism says, yeah, but it's, all, it's, not, re- it's not real. It's just an illusion, and yet Christians have persisted by saying, nope, suffering's real, not an illusion, it's real, you're actually going through it. Um, but you're going through it to produce a virtue. Um, and indeed, you have to have that virtue um, given by God uh, to, to endure it. Um, so one of the things that, that, uh, that I think is really important when, when we endure, when we come up against suffering, we'll often ask the question." why am I enduring this suffering? Why am I facing this misery that's upon me? Why am I facing death? Why am I facing disease? Why am I facing these things? Well, why is not a great question to ask. (laughs) Um, What we we really need to do in prayer is is turn to God and and ask him earnestly, what do you want me to do with this? Um, As we receive these crosses in life, to say, what do you want me to do? Um, to look to Jesus, in fact, who, who, who says, let this cup pass from my lips, if it be your will. And then he says, what do you say? Not my will, but thine be done. So we, we, we have to uh, cultivate a surrender to God's will in the midst of suffering um, and ask him uh, for the endurance that's necessary to, to, to make it through. All right. We'll pick up next week with the rest of this, and uh, this is great fun. Uh, Most of this uh, deals with with uh, really interesting things, but but we'll we'll pick up with it next week. Um, I I'm thinking about, and let me know what you think about this. I'm thinking about doing a very 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 cursory and unscholarly trip through church history uh, for uh, the later sessions of catechesis in the month of June. Um, And uh, so let me know if you think that sounds like an intriguing idea or not. we're about to get through all the bishop election drama, so there will be tons of time to, to throw at that. Uh, and so if, if that's something you think we should do, or if you've got another idea about how we could f- structure the last month of catechesis, do let me know. Thank you.